0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the VJ Hemonk Podcasts, where we bring you the latest updates in hematological oncology and exclusive insights from renowned experts. In today's episode we'll be focusing on exciting news in the MDS space from the European Hematology Association and American Society of Clinical Oncology meetings. We are thrilled to be joined by three globally recognised leaders, Amir Zaidan, Andrew Wei and David Sormann. They have lots to share with you today, covering the latest trial data for key approved and investigational agents, novel targets and therapeutics, and patient selection considerations in light of a broadening treatment armament area.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this new episode of MDS sessions with VG and ONG. So, today um, it's a pleasure to be looking at uh, the main MDS presentations from the American Society of uh, clinical oncology uh, meeting as well as the European Hematology Association uh, meeting. My name is Amr Zaidan uh, from Yale University and it's a pleasure to be accompanied today by uh, Dr. Andrew Wee from Alfred Hospital as well as Dr. David Salman from the Amofit Cancer Center, both very well-known experts in, in MDS. So we'll be discussing some of the most important abstracts and Um, foresee how things are going to look in the next two years in the clinical research and translational research for MDS and uh, uh, ARENA. So maybe I can start with uh, uh, with Dr. Wei. Um, So from looking at the list of presentations for both meetings, what caught your attention in, in MDS?
2: So from a therapy's point of view, in terms of more uh, higher-risk disease, uh, there are a number of uh, abstracts presented looking at the role of uh, pevanetostat, uh, venetoclax with uh, azacitidine, and also sabatolamab plus hypomethylating agents. And there was uh, also a presentation of uh, IDH uh, inhibitors such as inacidinib in combination with azacitidine, albeit the frequency of IDH mutations in MDS is quite uh, small. And there was one, um, at least one new agent that uh, caught my eye, and that was uh, the IRAC-4 um, inhibitor uh, presented by uh, uh, Garcia uh, monero um, I thought this was particularly um, intriguing, even though it was a very early stage uh, study, and it sort of dovetails uh, a little bit with um, a study that I, I presented in regards to sabatolimab, and that is the growing role in... Um, Uh, of the inflammatory and inflammasome pathway in uh, MDS. And there was a a more summative um, presentation given by Julie Schneider from Leipzig, uh, which was on the topic of uh, the inflammasome uh, in MDS. And so she found that higher risk disease uh, was associated with more uh, inflammation activation in MDS. And so this perhaps gives some biological rationale to IRAC4, which is targeting uh, the inflammasome uh, in more of the earlier stages. And with respect to sabatolamab being shown to reduce IL-1B, one of the key uh, effectors of the inflammasome pathway after uh, sabatolamab in responding patients, I found uh, quite intriguing.
1: Now that's a very nice connection on the translational level between multiple agents being uh, studied about you david what what, what caught your attention
3: yeah, I mean, just to, to piggyback, so we, we've had a lot of interest in inflammasome targeting, you know, now for a while. So for example, we do have a canakinumab, um, you know, low risk MDS study, it's just, you know, initiated accrual in, in, in 2021. And there, to go along with the interesting mechanism, you know, where TIM3 may impact this as well, there is a sort of basket trial um, that is, you know, has been launching where, you know, IL-1 beta it in TIM3, and then other combinations are being looked at. You know, I think, you know, one thing to step back. I mean, some a lot of studies actually have looked at in lower risk MDS, s- some of the inflammation components are significantly overexpressed versus uh, versus higher risk, but clearly they may play a role in both. And I think it's a, it, it's a, it's an interesting space where it's easier to test agents earlier. Of course, in HMA failure MDS, where we don't have anything, but thinking about potential disease modification um, in lower risk and how these things play, play together, I think, are important since we really don't have any disease modification. And I think these sort of translational correlatives are really, you know, very, very key. I think we there's still a lot to understand from the MOA perspective. And we can comment, you know, with sabatolamab, migrolabab, and others, you know, are, is it the immune changes, uh, or in this case, inflammasome? Is it LSC targeting? And I think we're a little bit, you know, stuck with the fact that these trials are all single arm studies. And so, you know, what is really different between response and sort of change in the immune microenvironment with response and then what's truly occurring, um, you know, with these novel agents. Cause then I think it can help us direct the next set of studies that, you know, make the, you know, make the most, um, you know, rationale, just, just a comment uh, um, on that. Um, to me, I, I thought some of, some interesting abstracts uh, are, you know, are looking at, you know, how we utilize HMA venetoclax. You know, so for example, know jacqueline garcia had presented one abstract looking at dose modifications in mds um you know so as we know we already use a 14-day regimen instead of sort of the continuous regimen in the beginning but what i thought was intriguing is you know whether or not you dose adjusted the hma you changed to seven day um it really didn't make a hill of beans a difference um you know as far as the the ultimate outcome so i think dose adjustments and, and, and really, you know, very close monitoring with these patients with early bone marrow biopsies is key, but I think we still, you know, is one way better than another? Potentially not, I think, you know, based on that. I think similarly, what I thought was was interesting is, is Keith Pratt's, you know, you know, MRD has not been um, as as much of a, A thing in MDS, but I really think, particularly with all these novel doublets, and then maybe as we think about the the path forward in triplets, you know, ideally looking at MRD. Uh, in our MDS patients, probably by you know, high sensitivity, next-gen sequencing via whatever technology, I think will ideally give us a lot of insight. Um, but you know, you're looking at MRD flow, and I think it was potentially an AML abstract, but you know, less than 10 than the negative 3 versus, you know, still predicted, you know further stratified you know, prognosis long term. I really think these studies are going to be key in our MDS populations, particularly with these doublets going forward.
1: Yeah, and to kind of uh, take this uh, same issue forward, and also touch basing on some of of the, um, I think the, the drugs that are making it forward. Uh, I just want to get like Andrew's thoughts on on the pivonidistat. So pivoenidast is one of the drugs that have um, really completed the randomized phase two now, which has been reported. The phase three has completed accrual, and results are expected um, in the near future. And it could be one of the first drugs that go uh, before the FDA, depending on the results of the of the phase three. So Dr. Sekeris presented uh, an update looking at some of the molecular clearance and uh, reduction in variable allele frequency that occurs with this combination. And it's an interesting kind of first-in-class agent, which is always nice to study in, you know, in my in myeloid diseases. So I want to get your thoughts, Andrew, about how do you see the, the clinical benefit of pivonidastat in what has been presented so far from the Phase 2 trial, of course, while we wait for the Phase 3 results?
2: Yeah, so Mikhail Sikuris, uh presented... Uh, an oral uh, at this year's EHA meeting, uh, looking at uh, pebinetostat with respect to mutational clearance using an NGS based uh, approach. Uh, And also uh, there was a paper published in Leukaemia recently, which actually looked at uh, some elements of the uh, phase two randomized trial of AZA plus pebinetostat versus uh, ASA alone. So I think the the highlights of uh, those studies are first, uh, the response rate is quite uh, impressive in terms of the combined uh, response rate. Uh, The durability is also uh, quite uh, impressive. However, the survival curves uh, from the leukaemia paper sort of come together um, over time. Uh, So uh, that study was a little bit different from other MDS studies in that it um, merged patients with CWML, with oligoblastic uh, AML, uh, and also high-risk MDS. And it does beg the question as to whether, uh, in fact, uh, AML- Uh, or MDS with high levels of blasts and AML with low levels of blasts, um, is there a real, uh, you know, distinct distinction between those entities or in fact, is it just a continuum of a, of a, of a similar uh, disease, but just a, more of a spectrum rather than a dichotomous uh, split between MDS and AML? And I think it'd be really interesting in the next iteration of the WHO um, where patients with uh, blasts uh, above 10% go, because there was a recent uh, abstract by Eli Esty, uh, arguing that um, uh, AML, uh, MDS with EB2 should in fact be classified or treated um, as either MDS or AML, but basically both and not really distinguishing one uh, from the other.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And they they actually just published a letter in in blood making the same argument that a plus count of 10% to 30% that those patients should be considered eligible for both the AML and the MDS uh, trials when uh, when they are unfit for intensive chemo, which I think, you know, for many of us who treat these patients day in and out, uh, this is our – clinical sense that there's a lot of overlap and the 20% cutoff is somewhat artificial. Building on the same theme, uh, David, you, you talked about the AZFN and the dosing, and now we know that AZFN is approved in uh, in the frontline setting for older, unfit patients with AML. Um, and um, there has been a lot of uh, data um, presented uh, in, in the last two years from the ongoing studies for high-risk MDS. So since venetoclax is available already in, in the U.S., and you mentioned the issues that come in terms of how do you manage the dosing and the differences in the dosing and the drug interactions and the myelosuppression, all of these no-senses. Are you seeing a lot of off-label use uh, basically in, uh, in, in Florida or around your area basically with venetoclax and MDS?
3: Yeah, yeah, so uh, I think it's an important point. I, I think we, we can all, I think, definitively agree that, you know, single agent HMA is a quite underwhelming, you know, therapy for, for frontline high-risk MDS, you know, to get a complete remission in 15 to 20 percent and less than half of patients having some response. And you also kind of have to wait for a very long time. I mean, three to six months, you know, with, you know, coming to centers twice a week and transfusions and all of this is, is quite burdensome um, on the patients as well. Um, so particularly for patients that have um, excess blasts, um, I, I really don't utilize single agent HMA um, ever um, with maybe one caveat that I'll that I'll talk about uh, in, in, in a second. So, you know, clinical trials need to be highly prioritized. You know, all of the agents, you know, we, we really need to definitively answer these questions. And so all are in 500 patient phase three studies. So that really needs to be of paramount importance, you know, going forward really across the, across the globe so that we can really, again, answer what the durability of outcomes, molecular subsets, you know, is survival truly being, you know, improved? So that's that's the top priority. I think though, um, you know, it's clearly not possible for everybody. And I think we've learned learned a lot. So, um, you know, I, I use HMA venetoclax quite extensively for P53 wild type patients. So that's, so that's my one caveat, given that the group has not appeared to do any better, you know, with P53. And I do find that the cytopenia, um, prolongation, and maybe it's just a factor that the quality of response is not as good, is quite marked in that, in that patient group. So if if they're P53 wild type with excess blast off study, I use HMA then, and pretty much, you know, all of our patients approval is, is quite easy. I do a day 21 bone marrow biopsy, you know, we then hold to allow count recovery and often within, you know, less than two months of time, you can actually achieve your response. And again, I think similar to what, the, the data that we're seeing, and even if patients have been exposed to HMA for a short amount of time, and then they come to our center, we find that adding venetoclax back, um, and, and hopefully we'll maybe present some more data future. But we, you know, you know, published a, a smaller paper with Sloan Kettering group that, you know, that you know that can also, you know, be effective again, probably uh, in the setting of p fifty three wild type.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how you know the landscape kind of changes and in the real life practice as some of those agents become more available. So I guess now to dig more into some of your um, own presentations and, and where, I'll start with you, Andrew. So you presented an update from the ongoing phase one study of, of uh, sabatolimab, um, which is um, by, I guess, targeting agent that affects both the myeloid cells but also as an immune checkpoint uh, mm-hmm. inhibitor. And we are still trying to fully understand the mechanism of action the clinical data has been presented in combination with HMA more than once now, but um, your update was more focused uh, on trying to understand at the cellular level what's actually happening with the agent. But I also thought it was interesting to see some of the molecular subset data like the TB53 data that you, that you presented. So maybe you can um, give us an overview of what you presented and your thoughts on, on that.
2: Yeah. so in addition to the Sabatolemab paper, we also had a a poster on uh, Veneza, uh, which David mentioned. And so I think it's interesting to actually compare those two regimens because the common question we are asked is, uh, which one do you think is going to be the the future? And I wonder, in fact, uh, it's not necessarily going to be one or the other, and that uh, a variety of different therapies will be appropriate for different patient situations and clinical goals. So for instance, If the goal is to take someone to transplant um, and you want to get a remission quickly, then I think it's hard to go beyond Benazer because the response rate is 80% and they happen very quickly. Uh with respect to uh, if you don't have a transplant as an end game and you want something which is more more t- tolerable and you want t- to keep the patient on it for a long period of time, then some of these other options might be in fact uh, more amenable, for instance, Magrolimab or Sabatolimab or even Uh and with respect to P53 mutation, uh, the data is still uh, emerging. Obviously, we have I think the last presentation on MDS from David. There was I think four patients uh, with P53 mutation in the MDS group. Response rate there was 75%. Uh, we now have some data from Venesa where the response rate is uh, 80%, but CR rate 16%. But obviously, there is the concern that the durability of response is still unknown. And from the sabatolamab. Uh, Experience. there were 14 patients uh, with P53 mutation, the CR, MCR rate uh, was 50%, uh, but the duration of response was 14.7 months, which is uh, interesting. And one, uh, I guess, unusual aspect of the sabotolimab study was that the responses, as you mentioned, in these higher risk groups didn't appear to be uh, lower than the overall group, which is usually um, uh, not the case for conventional uh, therapies. Whether there's something biologically uh, relevant with respect to targeting TIM3 and preservation of response in higher-risk disease I think remains to be uh, proven. Uh, The only other uh, uh, thing I'll mention is that with the Venasa study, it's important to note that uh, almost two-thirds of the patients actually had EB2, uh, which is sort of an unusual uh, feature for an MDS study, and I think it's because our experience in AML with obviously more blasts, Um, was obviously very strong. And I think physicians are probably uh, preferentially enrol their patients to MDS studies with EB2 because they know it's almost AML and more likely to work and to work quickly.
1: No, very very good points. Uh, David, um, you also presented on Magrolimab over the last um, one to two years now, I guess now. And um, I don't think there was a presentation about APR246 this year, but... um, there has been um, an interest since uh, for a few years now, and the publication of the phase two data uh, that you and the French group uh, have done in the last couple of years. Um, uh, what, what's your sense of this TP53 targeting type of approach with both of those drugs, and um, where do you see this uh, field going forward?
3: Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the, the start is I, I really think we we need to subdivide these patients out and we really need to think about P53, you know, focus studies and not. And, and I know it's tough when companies want to go for, you know, you know broad label irrespective of, of molecular subset. But I, I think, you know, for better or worse, this group really needs to be, you know, targeted specifically. I think what the, the things that we've learned to date um, is that, you know, response rate by itself is probably a useless um, criteria, at least from a, just a pure CR or composite CR response rate. I mean, we know that, you know, obviously a lot from the, you know, AML, you know, despite 55, 60 percent response rates, you know, in um, with HMA Ben for this group, you still have a median OS of, of around six months. Um, and, and so uh, thinking about this group separately, I, I would say, you know, the largest, you know, cohort period in, in AML would be would be the Magrolimab data that we presented last year, you know, with data now of over 40 something patients. The follow up is too short. So I think the next presentation of that data will be extremely clear, you know, follow up was five, a little bit over five months. With a median overall survival of around 13 months, um, but we know, particularly with mogrolumab, that responses do continue to deepen over time, and thus that actually may, you know, improve. And if we're really starting to be past, you know, 12 months, that seems to be at least in AML patients quite, uh, uh, you know, quite strikingly of, of a difference. In MDS, as as uh, you know, Andrew mentioned, this, the p53 cohort is small. But I think to our earlier discussion, I mean, this is the 10 to 30 percent blast group. I mean, 80, 85 percent of these patients probably fit there. Very high blast P53 is somewhat uncommon and often associated with um, other other commutations. So I think this is a group it's a biologically probably singular entity where high VAF across both subsets is associated. Um, with, uh, with poor overall survival, they typically have a lack of other mutations. So I think we can think about our MDS and AML studies going forward. I think also to, you know, what both of you mentioned is, is the path forward is gonna be you know, multiple combinations. And so how do these drugs work specifically in the P53 subset? So at least with you know, the le- leading theory right now is the balance of pro me signals is what leads to the ultimate synergy with very low, if, if any activity, with single agent. Um, and so we know that HMA upregulates pro me signal calreticulin and now multiple groups, not just with migrolimab, but with ALIX, um, and I believe another um, agent they've shown that you know, for example, venetoclax can also uh, tip that balance. So in HMA, you know, ven forty-seven. Now we already I already said is that a good idea in P fifty-three? Maybe, maybe not. I think if that balance is is critical, I think it still would be worthwhile testing. At the same time, could we combine agents? Like an HMA APR two four six and, and, and forty seven agent, how does APR impact pro ame signals? You know, you know, we don't know. Um, but could we go through sort of a dual pronged approach? Because um, again, a median OS of twelve months, even if that's uh, significantly better, is nothing to to take home. We need to really think about the 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 next level. Um, you know, for these patients, uh, you know, APR and mogrolumab have the most data, I think, from that perspective. But we need to think about I We we know that there are clear immune differences, and so you know, would adaptive and innate immune activation sort of have a dual pronged benefit in this group? You know, I mean, we need to we need to test it. So I, I I love a lot of different triplet trials, and maybe we can have you know basket sort of studies if we can get companies to work together specifically for molecular subsets like p fifty three.
2: So
1: before I go to Andrew, I wanted to follow up on one point, David. Um, So there has been a lot of talk about tp 53 mutation targeting um, with with CD anti-CD47 agents, and there has been a lot of concern about lack of clarity of why this subset would be particularly sensitive, or is it just because those patients do very poorly that any drug that generally works for MDS and AML in a very good way potentially show effects, um, kind of, in a more prominent way. So, what's your what's your current thinking about uh, this issue?
3: Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great question. I mean, the latter is is very easy to say. Hey, this is a bad group that now is appearing to do better. Um, there are very, you know, we and others have published, you know, that there are quite dramatic differences in the immune microenvironment in p fifty three versus wild type. So you know that alone may have you know differential sensitivity to um immune modulating therapy i think is a question even could pdl1 pd1 therapy although those have not been um you know, overly impressive. Could this subgroup potentially have a benefit? I mean, that's a, that's a little bit um, off topic. I think there's some thought, although not proven, is the cytogenetic complexity. You know, these patients, could that tip, you know, to a higher, you know, pro-eat-me signal? I would say we've tried to look at it a, a little bit, um, and and we don't think 47 is is the biomarker you know, from cow uh, expression in a small subset, um, I would say was not dramatically different, but that's just one, you know, pro-EB signal. So I do think there needs to be, you know, you know, continued work. Is there something truly novel about, you know, sensitivity, you know, with P53 or it's a group? I think, I think in the end, the, the clinical data trump everything else, and we will learn on the back end as far as all approvals in MDS, how they, how they truly work or how they may truly work for subsets. But clearly, you know, the signal is there. And I, and I think as, you know, especially in the randomized trials, we can start to understand better what's different. Um, and, you know, you know, single cell, you know, RNA sequencing may be very insightful from that perspective, um, you know, which is, is easy enough to do nowadays. So,
1: yeah. So, uh, Alfred, basically in terms, uh, sorry, Andrew, in terms of um, thinking about um, the combination therapy, you know, you and David both brought up um, the combination and, you know, although we still don't have even a doublet approved at this point, we are already thinking about triplets and maybe quadruplets in the future and following that multiple myeloma paradigms. And I keep thinking uh, with, you know, MDS patients are generally much older than uh, most of the hematologic malignancies. Most of them are in their 70s and the myelosuppression with the bone marrow environment being quite diseased and um, not a lot of residual hematopoiesis. So how do you see the feasibility beyond the the appeal and, you know, some selected younger patients who are very good fit? How How do you see for the overall population of MDS, like, do you think these will have overall implications for the entire MDS population, or are we just going to be talking about selected subsets who can tolerate such um, triplets or more intensive therapies?
2: Perhaps for us in the last couple of years, the biggest clinical change with these new therapies is uh, the perception of patients, perhaps not so much as these older patients who are really just going on to a palliative course for a period of time and there's no long-term future, we're now looking at every MDS patient that's coming through. And the first question we're asking ourselves is, can we do a reduced-intensity transplant on these patients? Because we now have agents which can give us really high response rates that we've never seen uh, before. And I feel the discussion is not so much a matter of um, doublets, triplets and which agents, but it's which combination to get us to a transplant uh, and when to do the transplant. For instance, do we just wait for blast clearance if uh, EB1 or 2 was the problem, or should we try and go for cytogenetic remission? And as David mentioned before, should we even try and go for MRD remission, which could be in fact NGS-based before we go to transplant to basically make our big shot, which is the transplant, the most effective uh, as possible and so i think for me this is the central set of questions um, which new agents will get us to transplant when to do the transplant and maybe like in aml should we be doing something after transplant potentially mrd guided uh, as well what we really um, need to know i think is for instance uh, is just blast clearance enough because we usually get that more quickly If we also have to wait for cytogenetic cytogenetic and other um, MRD clearance, then that's going to delay the transplant. Does that come at a a cost of uh, progression? Maybe not so much in MDS as opposed to AML. And so I think these these questions are really critical, which hopefully uh, future studies might address in a more systematic uh, manner because at the moment um, a lot of it's just based upon institutional and and individual uh, practice.
3: Yeah, I think that's really, really key. I would love to start to see some of the transplant outcomes from, from some of the early phase phase patients because, you know, that ultimately, you know, are can we c- cure a significantly increased proportion of patients? I think that's a real hope. Um, you know, there's been anecdotal, you know, discussion a- a- across that, but really seeing these data and then, you know, a- as you said, you know, looking at MRD pre, post, of course, you've done a lot with you know with oral hypomethylating agents. Can we think about those strategies with some of these agents in the in the maintenance approach? And then maybe just to throw a wiggle in it, I mean, what what about induction chemotherapy in uh, you know you know high risk uh, you know you know patients? Um, you know, there are several trials with Bixios going on um, with with MDS EB. There's not really data to date. Uh, again, I think we would not do that you know in in the P fifty three setting, but what about in the wild type? you know uh you know patients i think it's something for us at least to to think about you know we we have this different paradigm but we already said there's you know the we have the same question in our fit 60 year old you know is hma ven or chemo a better route for a fit patient going to transplant to me that's maybe the biggest unknown question in uh in you know older but fitter um acute myeloid leukemia but i think we will have the same question the paradigm has never been there but maybe as some of these trials uh you know with vixios or other combinations um are are looked at i think they're they're really important yeah definitely
2: historically i think when we've had patients with um, eb2 and and obviously mds uh it's always been a little bit uh less attractive to go with intensive chemotherapy because one patient's going to be in hospital two in complications are going to be high and three yeah. the patient's condition for transplant is going to be suboptimal whereas i must admit Venazer with the 14 day schedule just hits that sweet spot where we're going to get a response rate as pretty comparable to intensive chemotherapy, but I think without all of the downsides of hospitalization and high infection rates. So I think for us, it's hard to go past uh, that at the moment. But I think uh, the key question is for P53 mutant patients, you know, is megrolomab, for instance, uh, the the way to go? And I'm really, really interested in your thoughts in terms of when do you take patients because we're doing the megrolomab. Uh, pivotal study at the moment and obviously <clears throat> the question is do we just go for blast clearance or do we wait for cr i know the study wants that but what's best for the patient yeah. do we wait for genetic clearance mrd clearance um, yeah. but as you know that's going to take more time to achieve uh, what be really interesting what you do for your patients
3: yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think what's nice, uh, you know, at least with, you know, m- the McGrolamab data is um, although the durability may not be forever, it's not like these rapid progressions. So y- you, you have time to get them through let's say six cycles or even somewhat more. Um, you know, I don't even know if, it, if we reported a patient that has progressed more quickly than that uh, in, in the setting of P53. So it's not like, I think with Venn, that's like a real fear in P53, things can change that quickly. I think it with um, that has has not been the case. And, and we just published a, a paper in, in Blood Advances. I think the cohorts are small. So we really try to look just with commercial NGS, 5% VAF, not MRD. So I think that's a real critical question going forward when we look at the p53 vaf how does that impact so if you did not clear p53 mutation your outcome was identical to just continuing hma monotherapy no difference whatsoever whereas if you cleared prior to transplant and again not at mrd that's the only group that had um you know benefit and it's still there i mean the, the tail of the curve is not good but those were the long-term survivors were patients with clear so that's actually how we're practicing essentially if we do not get at least a high level of, of P53 clearance, then we're thinking of other novel therapies and not taking them uh, to transplant. I think that's probably the most important marker to predict outcomes. Again, the cohorts were you know in the seven to nine patient realm, but I w- if you look at the New England 10-day decidabine, which was somewhat intriguing for the transplanted group, the same number of patients.
1: Actually, I'll take you up on that, um, on that thoughts uh, um, and ask Andrew, um, like for his thoughts about some of the new agents, like there are so many um, kind of drugs in advanced phase three testing. It's quite amazing in, 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 uh, in high-risk MDS. But I wanted to get um, your thoughts, Andrew, like we had the MCL one inhibitor, or MCL inhibitors basically kind of um, come as part of, uh, you know, interest in ap- targeting apoptosis pathways. And there was a lot of interest and then things seems to, uh, become not as active because of the concern about some of the toxicities. Uh, but there's still a very good preclinical rationale. And I know you've done a lot of work in, in this area for myeloid um, malignancies. So, do you see that th- there could be a resurgence of those agents? And how do you see they contribute to management of MDS patients?
2: Mm. So as you've um, mentioned, the first thing we learned with MCL1 inhibitors, despite incredibly strong preclinical rationale, a combination with BCL2 inhibitors uh, was going to you know, cure lots of diseases. Uh, I think what we've found is that the therapeutic window is, is much more challenging uh, than we had expected. And that was partly because... All the preclinical testing uh, was done, uh, obviously, in murine models, but uh, murine MCL1 is not as well targeted as human MCL1 by the drugs, and so there was a one-log difference in binding uh, potency, and therefore I think the... uh, And the other thing is that when we went into patients, obviously a lot of these patients had received a lot of anthracyclines, a lot of patients are older, and one of the key issues of targeting MCL1, which we know, again, from basic biology, is that there is going to be a cardiac signal, uh, there will be a gastrointestinal signal, and there could also be a liver signal. Uh, So what we need to do now is to work out can we lower the dose of the MCL1 inhibitor to a level where we can stay below the threshold of causing complications to those critical organs, then combine it with the most synergistic partner possible such that we can get the the clinical efficacy without having to raise the dose of an MCL1 inhibitor and is an intermittent schedule and picking the right patient that doesn't have a huge uh, anthracycline burden, cardiac comorbidities, liver tox, et cetera, um, going to give us that therapeutic window. Some other interesting approaches to try and uh, come to the same outcome is to use things like nanoparticles, which are thought to concentrate into the bone marrow more effectively than just giving the drug as a naked drug systemically. Uh, Can you uh, encase MCL1 inhibitors in nanoparticles, which can then concentrate into the bone marrow and then target the leukemic cells or MDS cells more than the heart, liver, and gut? And uh, another mechanism or approach which will be a technological hurdle, but if it can be surmounted, could be a massive breakthrough is can you conjugate an MCL-1 inhibitor to an antibody which is now directed towards the target of interest. If you could do that, then you could literally deliver an MCL-1 payload to any tissue you like, um, as long as you've got uh, a fairly narrow spectrum uh, antigen. So I think MCL-1 inhibitors remain biologically strong, Uh, now becomes a a, a clinical art of uh, trying to find a therapeutic window with a naked drug or a technological uh, hurdle to overcome? Can we deliver it uh, where we want to, away from critical tissues?
1: So David, on, on, on the same line, you know, we have, um, I guess, other targets within the apoptosis pathways and the CD47 targeting with Magrolimab was the first in class. Clearly there are a number of other agents targeting both CD47 and the serp alpha um, you know, um, interaction. So, what's your view on on those agents and the differences that they have from magrolimab?
3: Yeah, so I think in the beginning, you know, there there's been a lot of concern, obviously, with RBC binding and anemia, and we know we get that with magrolimab. Although with the priming strategy uh, and sort of this process of RBC pruning, where magrolimab exposed RBCs actually shed CD forty seven and and not really an impact over time, I think it's been less so. My my some somewhat concern on with some other agents is. Is the lower binding to, uh, you know, RBC going to potentially decrease potency, CD47 receptor occupancy on the uh, leukemia cells? So, so I have that concern. I think that being said, uh, that being said, which is also an IgG4 monoclonal antibody, which may have um, differential RBC binding based on glycosylation differences, um, you know, that's gone through full uh, dose escalation, has not had. Anti-drug antibodies, as as you 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 um, presented issues with the the selgene compound in the past, it has gone through full dose escalation, and already you know you know plans of the frontline, you know trials you know given partnerships uh, you know with 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 Venetoclax you know will be ongoing. I think the. CERB alpha fusion proteins such as TTI621, TTI622 are interesting. I think the IgG1 domain is probably not optimal because you can have a dose-dependent thrombocytopenia, and they probably did not reach their full PK potential um, based on that. So TTI622 being an IgG4, I think is interesting, uh, you know, to t- to go Forward, they have dosed significantly higher, Um, and can there, you know, there's some hint of monotherapy activity. What does that mean? Um, It hasn't really, at least in the lymphoma trial to date, shown then robust, uh, you know, increased synergy with rituximab. But I think it's something to look at. And then I think thinking of the way of the future, can you target CD47 and other? So there is, um, for example, the CD47 CD40 ligand. Uh, uh, inhibitor that's going to be uh, entering uh, uh, trials. There are potentially bispecific agents, although that can be a little bit of challenge given the ubiquitous expression, but potentially 47 plus other I think is, uh, um, is intriguing. Uh, and potentially, like with an LSC eradication, you may be able to partner it with another LSC targeting, um, you know, even in the setting of CAR-T, like a bispecific CAR could be something of, 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 uh, of future. But I think for frontline, probably, you know, looking at Magrolimab with like a um, I think thinking in the relapsed or novel-novel combinations, you know, some of these other uh, agents may, uh, you know, have interest to be looked at.
1: And this has been a theme, I guess, across immunotherapy where monotherapy might not necessarily give you a lot of activity in myeloid malignancies, but the combination seemed to go um, much beyond the monotherapy. So thank you so much, both of you. This was a great discussion, a a lot of exciting developments in in MDS, and the field is going forward at a very um, rapid rate. It looks like we're going to have some major change in the landscape over the next few years. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you on subsequent uh, sessions um, in the near future.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. And thank you to our MDS experts for their wonderful insights. You can now head over to Twitter to share your thoughts with us on today's topics and follow us at VJhemonk. There is lots more exclusive content available on our MDS channel, so make sure to visit vjhemonk.com to learn more. You can also subscribe to the VJ Hemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean.